0: Hi, everyone. Mike here. Today's episode is a cracker. It's with celebrated Disney animator Joe Haydar. It's an episode of two parts, really. In the beginning, we talk through his journey into the business and advice for anyone seeking a job in the animation field. Then we get into the incredible backlog of stories that Joe has, including how he pitched the idea of Disney's Hercules to Jeff Katzenberg, what it was like to work with Robin Williams on Aladdin, the making of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the DreamWorks Disney Animation Wars, and why he has a picture of himself and Steven Spielberg on his windowsill. That's all from me, here's the episode.
1: Um, I only attended a couple of recording sessions with Robin and you know, so, so grateful to have had that opportunity. And he's amazing, obviously everything you, you can imagine. I mean, those sessions left my face hurting from laughing so much that the muscles in your face, I literally couldn't laugh anymore.
0: Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookie's My name is Mike Battle, a screenwriter and production team member working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film and TV professionals to help educate and empower the next generation of filmmakers and crew. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is a first for us on the show, a multi-talented animator and storyboard artist. After gigs in commercials and music videos, he promptly transitioned to features, where he soon began working on what became the legendary Bob Semeckis film, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. From there, his career only picked up pace, animating at the center of the 90s Disney Renaissance on Beauty and the Beast, Pocahontas, Hercules, Mulan, and even Robin Williams' Genie in Aladdin. Now an accomplished storyboard artist as well, this man just bleeds creativity. Our guest is Joe Hadar. How are you doing today?
1: Oh, very well, thank you. That's a great introduction. Oh my God. I hope I lived up to it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's great to have you, Jay. The first question I always ask everybody is, what did your parents do, and how did it affect your career choices moving forward, if at all?
1: You know, I lost my father when I was very young, so um, at the moment when he died, he was in insurance, so it had nothing to do with what I do. And my mother was a secretary back in those days, an assistant to uh, someone in, uh, in Sears. But that had very little to do with my direction. I think a lot of uh, where my interest came. My father was interested in movies a lot. But we really didn't spend enough time together for me to sort of get that from him. But you know, that we had the whole process of immigrating. We, we moved from Lebanon to Canada when I was nine years old. So that was a cathartic uh, experience for me. Um, moving from a very temperate zone to a very freezing, frigid atmosphere. And, uh, and on top of that, um, not being able to speak English was a big, big uh, hurdle. And back in those days, uh, there really wasn't enough uh, remedial help for children to learn how to speak English. I was just thrown in the fourth grade and it was a kind of sink or swim situation. So uh, the thing that got me through it, really, my parents spoke English very well, so they they switched From Arabic to English in the house. So my brother and I would have to learn it from them as well. But um, it was very isolating. So um, I think that really formed a lot. I was really into comic books back then before we came to Canada. And then I just kind of retreated even further into comic books when uh, we moved to Canada. So it became kind of my communication. uh, What is that? Like a a little something I can communicate with the other kids with. And, and the drawing, I, I mean, it inspired me to draw a lot. So uh, other kids thought that was really cool. So suddenly you were this kid who couldn't really say more than two or three words. And but hey, that guy can draw Superman. So um, it kind of gave me an entree into that world. And then
0: when you finished school, obviously animator isn't necessarily the most obvious step for one to take, particularly back then. Because am I right that the Disney heyday had finished of animation and it was before the renaissance to come. So where were you and your headspace at that point before you went to college? Am I right?
1: Right. So that's really a good point. Um, it's hard for people to believe or to remember or understand back then that there was no information about the film industry. I mean, there might've been one or two books, but you'd really have to know how to find them. And we're talking about the late seventies. Um, so animation to me was just a word that was on the TV guide that when I looked for movies that I wanted to watch, it said animated. And I knew that was a cartoon and not live action, although we never used the term live action. So we just knew that there's the real movies and there's an animated movie. Um, But I didn't know how animation was done. I didn't even know it was a career. I had no clue about animation as as a vocation. I was looking at comic books, and I knew who comic book artists were. And I knew comic books were done by human beings. And I thought, that is what I want to do. But I was procrastinating in high school. Back in Canada in those days, you could have five years of high school. So you could go up to what is called the 13th grade back then to procrastinate another year (laughs) if you wanted to, which I think is brilliant. And I I really hope that they keep doing it. um, But I don't think they are. Um, but I stalled because I really had no, I was really kind of reticent about telling my mother I wanted to do, um, comic books. Um, I just didn't think that was going to go over. And my father had passed away and uh, I think she wanted me to be a serious, uh, you know, person in the world and nobody respected animation or, or comic books back then. That was, and none of my friends were even remotely into it. Everybody was an academic. They were all going to be engineers and whatever. So I just had no, nobody around me to kind of give me a, uh, a picture of what, what I could potentially be. And while everyone encouraged my drawing, nobody thought it could be a career. It was purely like, hey, that's a great hobby you have there. Um, but um, it was only one day in the 13th grade that I saw a movie on television called, um, It was an old Fleischer uh, animated film called uh, Gulliver's Travels. And I asked my art teacher about it because I was fascinated by the human characters. And I knew that Disney did brilliant human characters, although none of us spoke that way back then. It wasn't like, oh, they did brilliant human. No, it was just like, there's amazing movement and color and shapes going on, but I never understood how it was all happening. But when I asked my teacher about it and he he was um, this very charming uh, Irish, usually a little drunk uh, gentleman. Um, and he just said, you know, there's a college here in Canada called Sheridan College and they teach animation. And I thought, what the hell is that? Uh, you mean like cartoons? And he said, yeah, you mean you can go to college to learn this? I just thought that was insane. Um, he introduced me to that college. I looked them up and I, sure enough, they had a, a world famous program. And I thought, oh my God, this, I can tell my mom this. I can go to her and say, I'm gonna be in the movies somehow. And, um, and, you know, and it really, it, over time I look back at it and I just go, it covered the two big interests I had without knowing I had that interest. Well, of course was drawing, but the other one was storytelling. I loved stories and um, I loved drawings that tell stories. So uh, comic books, of course, did that. Um, And then I quickly discovered animation was another form of that, but on a much larger scale. Um, And so my um, my direction was kind of decided, even though my mom was still not that, um, you know, she's still wary of it, but she got on behind it afterwards. But people really can't understand back then that there was no making of books, there were no videos, there's no internet, there was nothing. So you're really jumping into a void and you just have no clue whether this is a viable industry, but you're just going with your gut.
0: Yeah, I well, I read uh well I actually saw you in an interview saying that one of your life philosophies is single swim baby. Yeah. And I guess you were doing that. You know, you didn't know what was going to come. You didn't know all those movies going to blow up again. It was almost like I don't know, going into electric cars 15 years ago or something and going like, "Okay, I'm going to do it."
1: It is kind of like being an entrepreneur but without really knowing what that is. Um but part of what actually I'm motivated by back then is um a fear of doing something that I just would not like. Um And I saw too many adults doing that, um, and it scared the pants off of me. I had a part-time job at Sears uh, through high school and college, and I would work three days a week at this uh, Sears uh, store as a salesman on the floor. And I remember seeing the full-timers, and they they were the ones who had the greatest influence on me because I would look at them on their coffee breaks and they lived for their coffee breaks, their, you know, smoking and coffee, smoking and coffee for those 15 minutes. And I just thought, you know, I'm 17 years old and I, just, I cannot do this. This is, is not, this cannot be my future. Um, and I had just started uh, my animation tra- uh, training at Sheridan and I just thought I have to have to succeed here. This, or this is what's waiting for me.
0: Amazing. With uh, live action working on set-based jobs, which is what, what I do it's something that you can basically go in most of the time and you don't need to study it in a more traditional way for people who are wanting to be animators now is the advice to go to college like that it's not really something you can learn on the job is it quite the same
1: it's both um right now there just about every college has an animation program i mean it's try to find a college that does not have an animation program um i couldn't imagine everywhere all over the world so if you can afford it and you can go to a really decent college, you will learn a lot. But if you can't, there's also lots of online tutoring, you know, that you can get as well. But um, you know, animation breaks up into many, many different forms today, whereas back then it was hand-drawn animation, and that was pretty much it. Stop motion kind of existed on the fringes, but I don't think unless you absolutely loved it and knew it, you would have pursued that. Um, so it was really hand-drawn animation, you know there were really no other choices. So for me, that was perfect. But today, you really have to decide what kind of an animator you want to be. Fairly, I mean, you don't have to do it right away, but you kind of have to do it at some point. And obviously, the most prevalent animation today is computer animation. So if you're going to be an animator, you better love computer animation. If you want to do hand-drawn animation, you better learn to do other things because at the moment, it's... It's around and it's in different forms, but if you want to do classical Disney-style hand-drawn animation, you're going to have a hard time finding it. So there might be a movie every five years, but um, that's not enough to exist on. So a lot of animation is done today with what's um, called like cutout animation that's done. With, um, I have never actually done it, so I really don't know it that well, but it's um, using software where they build a library of uh, images and you piece them together to create a drawing. And then that becomes your keyframe and everything. And and it takes skill to do that for sure, but you don't always have to draw it yourself. The barrier to entry back in those days was drawing. If you have no ability to draw, if your draftsmanship was weak, um, you're pretty much shut out. Today, you don't have to draw at all. I think it's good if you can draw. I really do. It gives you way more options. But if you're just versed with that software and you know how to manipulate a character, I mean, it's, a, it's generally a, a digital puppet that you're moving around. So if you are good at posing it and timing your animation and creating a performance out of it, you never have to draw. So um, there's definitely two schools of thought and maybe further than two schools probably splintered off into many different forms. I mean, there's um, special effects animation, of course, for, you know, the big live action movies where you might have to do a creature or something. And that timing and that kind of animation is far different from the kind of animation that Pixar would do or uh, Disney or uh, DreamWorks, where it's more cartoony. It's more character leaning towards, say, comedy, but suddenly now you're doing King Kong or Godzilla. You know, that's a whole different kind of an ethic. So you have to really decide which way you want to go. And some guys can manage all of them, which is amazing. Um, And I've kind of managed to do a few things myself, but generally studios like to hire people who are uh, proficient in one thing. So you have to kind of specialize. And today we use the word branding. You really have to brand yourself as, oh, and, and that kind of happened a lot at Disney without me even understanding that term back in the day. But anyway, I digress. Um, I, I'm not sure if that answered the question properly.
0: That answers it. That's great advice. I'll take you back though, back to you. Um, so you finished college and you've, you've gone off to London. Could you talk us through why you moved and how you got the job on Who Frame Roger, Roger Rabbit? I struggle to say that. Roger Rabbit.
1: No, that's great. <laughs> um, so first of all, there's a, a big, big book that came out in the early 80s um, that uh, was by the nine old men, two of the nine old men from Disney called The Illusion of Life. And that became the Bible for animation for a long time. It's kind of still is, But that when I looked at that book, which I couldn't afford at the time, I think it was just way <laughs> too much for me. But it was this the, the um, at Sheridan, they had a copy around and whatever. I realized, oh my God, there are these human beings that did all these movies that I grew up with and their draftsmanship and everything was through the roof. So I wanted to work in that world, but I couldn't figure out how to get from Toronto to Los Angeles when I was in my early twenties. Like what does one do? And back then, you know, you couldn't like email a recruiter or something like that. So you couldn't, I just couldn't figure it out. It really stopped me. I didn't have a lot of money. And um, so after I graduated in Canada, I was desperate for my first gig. And um, someone gave me great advice. They said, come and work at this big comic book store that my buddies and I used to go to all the time. In fact, it was probably one of my buddies who told me that. And he said, just come and work here. It was called The Silver Snail. It's still there in Toronto. And um, he said, everybody in animation comes through here. So it was really my very first effort at networking. So I worked at the Silver Snail for a year um, and I ran into somebody who gave me a tip on my first gig. So I went off and did that. And um, it was a very small um, animation thing. And it led to a slightly bigger one, uh, which was the very second time that the Care Bears were ever introduced to an audience uh, around 1983. Um, It was a, a Care Bears TV special. Anyway, so we got I, I got to work on that. And I and, and as as an entry level animator back then, we were called assistant animators. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, is this the best I could do? Like I just thought it was it was really lame. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the care bears, but it just it wasn't Disney. It wasn't what I was really, really looking to do. So I couldn't I just couldn't go back to that kind of thing. And then a couple of college buddies of mine, um, one in particular, Claude Chasson, was uh, he and his brother, who was a much more senior animator, uh, were going to England. And they said, there's lots of work in England. We really, you know, we're going to go. If you want to join us, we'll be there. And, you know, I thought about it and thought about it. And I thought I hardly have any money. But again, it's that same question of, do you want to work on Care Bears or or do you want to take Door 2 and see if... What that has to hold, because I knew what Canada had to offer and it just, it didn't excite me. And uh, so I jumped on a plane and went over to England and Claude met me at the um, Victoria Station when I made my way over there. And he literally, the day I arrived, he took me to a bed and breakfast. We tossed my luggage in the room and then he showed me where all the studios were in the West End. He had already arrived a few months before me and was working um so he said uh he took me around and and i took my resume and i left it at all these little boutique studios in london and the next day i had a job it was insane and back then uh, if you are Canadian or in the Commonwealth, you are allowed two years um, work visa or so to live and work in Europe or in London or in England, I should say, anywhere, and and to, so you can travel through Europe. So it was very exciting, and um, and we ended up in a small boutique studio called um, Animation Partnership, and um, we were doing commercials, and I mean it was very heady for me back then, but in London. That seemed in the, in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s, I think England, London had the best animation. Disney had sort of become very stagnant and um, and nobody was really doing anything terribly exciting in the world. But London was thriving and everybody was bringing their commercials to do. If you had a high quality animated commercial or something to do with animation, you went to London to have it done. Richard Williams was there, who was you know, one is one of the biggest and most prestigious studios. And then people who sort of broke away from his studio set up their own little studios. So he was like the big tree that dropped all these uh, seeds and created a little forest of boutique um, animation houses that all had their own specific style. And we would just go and work at all these little uh, studios. So you'd like work at one. And when you're finishing a gig, Everyone went to the Green Man over at, uh, you know, in the West End. And that seemed to be the place where you would see all your peers and somebody would mention, oh, yeah, you know, uh, Oscar Grillo needs somebody for this big commercial over, you know, at um, at his studio or Eric Goldberg or whomever. And um, so that's how I moved around. And I just kind of got to work at lots of little studios. Um, But how it led to Roger Rabbit, that's a long story, but I'll try to keep it really short. Um, so doing many commercials, but I was still an assistant animator. I wasn't an animator. And I was waiting for someone to kind of give me that leg up. And while the commercials I worked on threw me a little bit of animation to do in the background, none of it really um, got me to where I needed to be. So I, I finally took this like proactive um, thing where I just sort of took my career in my hand. And I just said, okay. I've done this now a few years and I'm done with it. I want to animate. That's what I got here to do. And so, um, I stopped, I stopped accepting those jobs and I went from being in the best studios and just kept dropping, dropping, dropping to the bottom of the wrong studios. And, um, you know, finally, I got some like very, very effects like animation, like animating lettering in a commercial or, or some special effects and whatever, but at least it was animating. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna have to work my way back up again. But in a very short time, like literally a month or two, I get a call from Eric Goldberg, who had a studio called Pizzazz Pictures. And Eric is like a genius animator from New York. And uh, he offered, and I'd already worked for him before as an assistant, but he said, hey, I'm willing to try you out on a small commercial. And he was trying a bunch of younger animators. So I jumped at the chance and, you know, got through the process and he seemed to like my work and actually asked me to stay. But at that time, we had been hearing about a movie. Every time you go to the pub, everybody's talking about who framed Roger Rabbit. Hey, it's a Disney Spielberg movie and it's like this massive thing. And a lot of my British friends were like, ugh, Disney, Spielberg, oh, I hate it. You know, and they're also anti-establishment and anti, (laughs) uh, you know, the big conglomerates and whatever. And I was just going, are you kidding me? I want to be on that thing. Like in a hot second, how do I get on there? And back then it was so simple. Like, it wasn't like you have to find a recruiter or anything. I don't know. I found the phone number. I called, I set up a meeting. And I got to meet Don Hahn, who was producing uh, the animation, who, you know, later on became a big, big uh, producer at Disney. And he literally interviewed me and looked at my um, portfolio and said, you know, we can hire you. But he says, you don't have enough to come in as an animator. We'll hire you as an assistant animator. And then we'll see if the cream rises. So I had told myself before this that I will never, ever again accept assistant animator work. Uh, I said, I'm an animator, and that's it. I'm calling myself an animator, and that's it, baby. But here was an opportunity to work on this like insane movie, and I knew this was the most incredible movie on the planet Earth at that time to work on as an animator. Uh, And I thought, I can't blow this chance. So I tried not to say no. The words were coming out of my mouth, and I just had to say Sure, that sounds great. Even though in my heart I was like, damn it, I don't want to come in that way. But I'm so glad I said yes. Um, you know, I had a week before the movie started. So I literally went to a travel agent. I said, in 24 hours, I want to be on a beach somewhere. Um, and I was literally in Tenerife uh, a day later just to sort of decompress and get ready for it. And then um, I started, and they um, teamed me up with um, Phil Nibblink who was a senior animator from Disney, an American one, who came to the studio to work there. And they had a few of them, him, Andreas Deja, and Dave Spafford, who were um, Americans that were brought over from Disney. The rest of us were all like Canadians, Italians, French, you know, all a young, young team of people. And very few of us, I would say, were really qualified to work on a movie like that. And I'll say for sure, I certainly was not. But we had an enormous amount of determination. And, um, and here you were working with the legend, Richard Williams, and Steven Spielberg, and, and Bob Zemeckis, of course, um, and you know all these big heavyweights from, from LA. Um, so it was very, very heady. I was on the movie for 13 months. I never really took a day off, ever, because my animation just, let's just face it, I wasn't really up to it back then. So I had to struggle and struggle and struggle and to me struggling meant never ever leaving the studio so you stay late at night you come in on the weekends um, and you just go at it and you go at it and you fight your way through it you know it was it was very um, it was very both incredibly fun because you're with a team of people who are all your age pretty much and everybody's excited um, but at the same time you know that this is a life The once in a lifetime opportunity, and you really like can't fuck it up. Um, And you know, I came close uh, a few times, maybe. Um, Richard Williams, who's uh, who was in his fifties at the time, and he was already you know world renowned, won Academy Awards, and I mean, I was petrified of him, and he had a bit of a temper, and I saw his temper get unleashed on some people, and one day it was my turn. You know, he read me the riot act for something that was really incredibly trivial, but it was, um, (laughs) I'll never forget it. He called me into his office and he yelled at me for an hour, (laughs) uh, what seemed like an hour. I don't quite remember. And here I was 26 years old, the very first feature I'd ever worked on. And, um, I had transitioned to an animator by this point. So the cream rose. Thanks to the help of Phil Nibblink, who threw me some animation to do that we didn't tell Dick about. So whenever Phil had some background character work, he would just kind of nudge it over to me and help me do it. And then eventually, I remember this being um, the day he sort of said, we have to tell Dick about this. I mean, this is insane. Nobody does this sort of thing anymore. But back then, it was like, you know, Dick was approving animation that he thought Phil had done, but I had done it but under Phil's tutelage. So Phil finally went over to tell Dick about it. And I remember sweating like um, cats and dogs, man. Um, and and I saw them talking and then Dick said, oh, great, well, let's make up an animator. And it was just like, oh, that's it, okay. So Dick uh, started taking a group of us um, uh, younger guys to sort of ri- raise us up to animator level. And by doing, a, the way he did that was he took all the baby Herman scenes Um, and he would quickly, uh, key them out in, in that he would do every eighth frame. So frame one, frame nine, frame 17. And he would do these beautiful drawings and poses of baby Herman, um, in, uh, Sharpie. And he would hand them to you. And the only numbering is, is what number that drawing has to appear on, has to appear on drawing or frame nine or frame 17 or frame 20, uh, whatever. So, um, that's all you were told. And he said, just finish it. Now in animation, that's, um, that's still leaving you an enormous amount, but what he's done is he gave you tent pole poses to help you out. So you don't like get lost and you don't drift, but it was up to you to finish all of that. And that there's still a lot to work out. So that was a really nice, uh, little life raft for you to, to sort of learn on. But that was the, the was one of those scenes that um, he called me into his office on because he didn't like the way I numbered my my drawings. And I was numbering them B1, B2, B3. And he, I don't know, he had a thing that Milt called his favorite Disney animator used to anim, uh, number them 1B, 2B, 3B. Like he just put the number before the letter. So I got called out on the carpet for an hour about how Milk called it, it this way. And you're, you know, you're not as you know, I don't know what. I mean, he just called me all kinds of horrible things. And I was just like really sitting there thinking, my life is over, everything is over. It's all over. You know, I'm 26. It's all over. Uh, the biggest animator in the world hates my guts, and I'm on the biggest movie in the world. And it's just, it's just all over. And I don't know why I didn't just break out and cry, but I I held on. And then finally he said, Hey, do you have this shot like on video? Can I look at it? And I said yes. And I thought this will be it. This will be the final um nail in the coffin. And we walked over to the little video suite and I played it for him. And he just kind of leaned over and looked at it and looked at it again. And then, oh, okay. That looks good. Um, keep it up. And then he walked out. And he left me in a puddle on the floor. And I was, and I remember just thinking after that, um, You know, I was I'm very emotional, that kind of thing gets to me. Uh some guys are tougher and they can kind of take it in their stride. I to me, it was this is like the biggest guy in the world. And and he almost destroyed me. So I had to go and literally talk to myself and say, never again will I let anybody their um their attitude or whatever affect me that much, especially him, because he vacillates from extreme highs to extreme lows. And, and so I said, from here on and just stay calm, just think of the end and just and just do the work and don't let his um, temper get to you. Because later on, he actually went in the opposite direction and he saw something that I did and he would like literally go to everybody. He'd interrupt Bob Zemeckis in a meeting and he'd go, hey, Bob, Bob, um, did you see what Joe did? Do you see how he did that little thing with a weasel and whatever? And Bob's like, uh yeah, yeah, no, that's nice. And and it was just like embarrassing because it was just, it's almost like he was trying to make up for what he said before. And I was just always like, okay, stay calm. Good, good is good and bad is bad, but I don't care. It's all the same from here on in. And I'll never forget at the rap party um at Radio City Music Hall. It wasn't the rap party, it was the premiere. And um they invited us and it was amazing. And Dick signed my program and I still have it, and it said you know, was it worth it, Joe? <laughs> and um, I have to say it was worth it, but it was, um, it was an incredibly uh, tumultuous thing. But um, just to sort of finish that story, after uh, just near the end of Roger Rabbit in London, we, we were doing it in Camden Town, by the way. Um, and when the movie was coming to an end, our manager, Max Howard, was going to L.A., And he asked a lot of us, hey, do you want me to take your portfolio to LA and see, you know, drop it off with the review board at Disney and see if you guys want to, you know, work it in LA. And a few of us did. And I was like, you know, LA is really where I want it to be. So I thought, okay, sure. So I signed my portfolio with Max. When it came back, it had nothing in it. Nobody said anything. So I just assumed I was rejected. And that was the end of that story. And then I was negotiating a movie in Munich to go work in Germany on a small animated feature uh, called, I think, Willy the Worm or something about a worm that stows away on Christopher Columbus's ship. And um, and I was almost set to, to go. And I was back in Canada. The contract had arrived and I was literally, I mean, I'm not kidding. I was about to sign it. The phone rings and my buddy, Nick Ranieri, who has already made it to LA and was working on the Little Mermaid said, hey, your name is up on the board. You're supposed to get some shots. Back then we called them scenes on Little Mermaid. And why aren't you here? And I thought, what the hell are you talking about? Nobody told me I was hired. So he talked to their um, recruiter, but back then they weren't called recruiters, personnel. And um, I got a call back and they said, yeah, we'd like to come get you over here. I mean, I totally dodged a bullet. You know, um I was really not keen on going to Munich on this movie, but um suddenly, you know, I had a shot to go to l a to work uh, at Disney, so yeah, that completely changed my life and uh, I, w- I finally made it to Burbank, so sorry for the long story
0: <laughs> Incredible story, and also what an education trial by fire and one of the things that I wanted to talk about is you obviously got Roger Rabbit. You know, under your belt, what, what a film to have on your CV. And then we, we can't not talk about the Disney Renaissance, obviously, which you were a, a key part of. And one of the many that you've done, one credit that does stand out to me is apparently you had the idea for Hercules. Is that right?
1: Yes. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's hilarious. Um, so when we were working on Aladdin, Jeffrey Katzenberg um, opened the door for all of us to come and pitch ideas. You know, I was still very young at Disney and learning the Disney process. It's very difficult when you enter a studio like that um, from the outside and you haven't like been indoctrinated by uh, Cal Arts or something. So kind of when I landed there, everything was a new learning process and then learning how to live in L.A. and all of that. But by, by sort of by Aladdin, things were starting to stabilize. And um, and then Jeffrey opened that door to any artist who worked at the studio to come and pitch any idea they wanted. And I thought, what a rare opportunity to sort of stand in front of him and Michael Eisner and pitch something. I've never pitched anything in my life at that point. So um, I concocted this idea of Hercules because I remember at the time thinking, well, Disney only does um, known properties. They they, I had never really even Oliver and Company and the great mouse detectives were, were based on. You know, actual stories, Um, you know, Sherlock Holmes and um, Oliver, you know. So the idea of coming in with an original idea seemed ridiculous to me, uh, although a lot of people tried. So I thought, you got to go with something that people have heard of. And by that point, they had pretty much used up all of the fairy tales that I'd heard of. So I thought, what's the next source of great stories? And I thought, the, you know, Greek mythologies would be great. And of all the Greek mythologies, like the one that, I've heard of the most is Hercules. So I thought, okay, let's look at Hercules. So I read some stuff on Hercules and I thought, oh my God, this is really bloody. And, you know, he killed his family in a rage and uh, a madness. And he, he, he looked for his uh, stepmother to, to find atonement who she, she gave him, you know, the 12 labors. I just thought, oh my God, this this is a disaster. How do I make this Disney friendly? So I found a way to sort of tell that story in, a, in a, an encapsulated thing. And I, what I was thinking of is I wanted a Ray Harryhausen movie. I wanted to see like big creatures, you know, mythological hydras and, you know, scary monsters that he would defeat. So that, you know, I had a very big boys adventure film in my head. So I kind of created the story that sort of told that story. And anyway, so here's how that went. This was, uh, I've never experienced anything like that before or since, Um, the day of the pitch, they got all of us in a room and there was over 40 of us pitching. And we were brought into a giant conference room. And uh, Michael Eisner was there, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Roy Disney, um, Walt's nephew, and all the executives. And they all sat in the room. And here's the deal. They said, we're going to draw your name out of a hat. You're going to have about four minutes to pitch your idea. Then you have to sit down and shut up and wait for everyone else to finish. You can't leave the room. So it was like to be no distraction. So I thought, okay, you know, we're all sitting there appreh- apprehensive about it. And they drew a name out of a hat and the gentleman sitting next to me, uh, Francis Galibas, who who's a, a storyboard artist at Disney. Um, he got up and pitched and I can't quite remember. I think it was the Iliad, but it might've been the Odyssey. I always get those two mixed up. <laughs> and as soon as he started talking, Jeffrey, you know, attack them. Like, it's like, it's too big. It's too big. How do you plan to make it? How do you reduce it? How do you believe it? And, you know, Francis is struggling to try to get his pitch across. And he had kind of written some notes and he wanted to kind of hand them out. And I just looked at it and I just thought, oh, my God, this is a crash and burn. Um, and he's pitching a Greek mythology. And I really need to distance myself here. And I thought, thank God, there's 40 people in this room. Somebody else will go before me. You know, there'll be like 10 people between us. And then so they draw another name out of a hat. And sure enough, it's me. And I just couldn't believe it. I just, I mean, I'm number two after Francis crashed. (laughs) And I'm coming in with Greek mythology. And I was so angry. I was just like, this is not the way I want to do this. And I held up my painting that a friend of mine, um, Eric Robinson, helped me paint this thing. Uh, and it was a one sheet of uh, Hercules, uh, Di- Walt Disney presents Hercules. And we did this kind of Hercules uh, one sheet. And I'm trying to pitch my story. And sure enough, Jeffrey attacks right away and is asking me questions. And I don't have the answers. And I didn't have a graceful way to sort of discuss it. And I felt like he was, like he was really, like I just completely misread him. And I thought he was just angry and he was just, you know, So by the end of it, I just said, you know, Jeffrey, you're going to have to hire a writer to work all this out, you know, which is kind of obvious. And it was stupid of me to say that to a a big executive like him, but I just kind of wanted to stop talking and sit down. Um, And then he goes, you got two out of three here. You got two out of three, meaning like you got a good, pretty good title and you got a really good theme, but I don't think you have a story. That's how I interpret it. So I just thought, oh my God, he hates me. He hates it. I'm sitting down. Um, And then I sat down and I listened to all the other pitches and so many of them, nobody spoke and he never said anything to anybody. Like 90% of them, he didn't say anything to. And I thought, well, why is he listening to that person? I mean, uh, some of the ideas I thought were really, you know, not that great. And I thought, why doesn't he attack that person? I mean, you really should stop it. It's embarrassing. And I just sat there fuming, um, thinking, You know, why them and not me? And, uh, you know, finally, the the ordeal ended. And um, three weeks later, I receive a letter and five ideas from that uh, pitch session were taken. And Hercules was one of them. And so were all the ones that he attacked. All the people he attacked, pretty much, were the people that he was interested in. The people he wasn't interested in, you know, doodling on his pad, waiting for them to have their four minutes. But I didn't, I completely misinterpreted it. And um, yeah, so that's how that happened. And then Ron and John, the two biggest directors at the studio um, at the time were given the film. And I remember I, this was two years after I pitched it and, and it was in development, but I had nothing to do with it from then on. And John called me up one day and said, hey, look, I've been looking through all the scripts and everything that people have written on this, but I can't find what you wrote. So I sent him literally the two-page outline that I wrote. And it was really nice. I thought he said, you know, that out of everything in development on this project, your two pages were the best. But in the end, they went in a completely different direction. I never ended up working on the movie. Um, I love what they did. It was not what I had in mind. You know, it was a a proper Disney movie. And at that time, I came to the realization that Disney could never make an action-adventure boys film. And even later on, when we actually tried Tarzan, I always kind of was like, yeah, this was almost there, but it was still, here's baby Tarzan, here's young Tarzan, here, you know, finally we get, oh, there's the Tarzan I want to see, but that's like the last 15 minutes of the movie. Um, So it was a a problem back in those days that they, the films seemed to skew a little bit more to the feminine and testosterone was always a difficult um, thing to put in, but, you know, but that's sort of the story of Hercules um, in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> I love it. That, that pitch story is absolutely fantastic. You're actually credited, credited on IMDb, Joe, as animating adult Hercules. Did that not happen?
1: Uh, no, that did not happen. No, I, nope, I, I hadn't. I always felt like uh, Ron and John were, I think, I don't know what their thinking was, but I never really felt terribly invited to be a part of that movie. And um, they were having a hard time casting me. And back in those days, you get cast. I don't know if that's... Uh, so animators were cast on a character. So everybody kind of uh, goes, oh, like, uh, you know, Mark Hen, he's a great girl animator. So you always kind of give him the ingenue female to do. Or uh, so-and-so is really good with four-legged animals. But I had sort of been all over the map. And I was kind of trying a little of this and trying a little of that. And when Ron and John called me in to sort of talk about what character I might want to do on Hercules... They said, "We're having a really hard time casting you." And I said, "How come?" And they said, "Well, you did you did the genie, but you did Gaston, but then you also did John Smith. Um, you know, we we don't know where you fall." And I said, "Well, doesn't that show that I'm versatile?" And they were like, "Yeah, versatile. Yeah,." Eh. And then I remember thinking, "Oh my God, I have been like directing my career in a completely the wrong fashion. I thought versatility was good, but then I really thought about it, and I thought, you know. Actors are not like given millions of dollars because they're versatile. Like you get Tom Cruise to do what Tom Cruise does. You you know, very few actors are paid enormous amounts of money because they can, you know, go from being um, an action star to Hamlet. And, you know, their salaries drop when they do Hamlet. And it was the same for animators. They wanted you to be branded as a specific kind of animator so they could cast you easily. And that I kind of shot myself in the foot because I kind of was trying a little bit of A and a little bit of B. And I wasn't really creating a, uh, a mystique about myself as, oh, that's the guy you go to for this character. So that was a really big wake up call. And then I kind of moved on to Mulan from there.
0: Interesting. You mentioned working on the genie there. How did it work? Because as I understand it, Robin Williams did a lot of improvisation. They did 16 hours of recording of him, didn't they? How did that come into your guys' roles?
1: So um, I only attended a couple of recording sessions with Robin and, you know, so, so grateful to have had that opportunity. And he's amazing. Obviously, everything you you can imagine. I mean, those sessions left my face hurting from laughing so much that the muscles in your face, I literally couldn't laugh anymore. Um, it was just like, I'd already used up all the laugh muscles, but, um, from what I saw, I mean, I'm sure he improvised, but what he really did is he took the lines and he gave you 50 different readings of them. You know, he just would do it in so many uh, varied ways. And I really felt sorry for Ron and John and the editors who had to pick the best take of all of those lines. It was always, um, like, how do you, like, how do you pick this? So, but somehow they managed to piece together the thing. But from what I know, it was mostly scripted by the writers and Ron and John. And I'm sure he did some ad-libbing as well. But the biggest ad-lib, I believe, is not the genies, but it was the opening. Um, oh, my God. What's it, the little merchant character that you find out later is the genie? Spoiler alert. Oh,
0: oh yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah no, no. Um, and where he has like the you know Dead Sea Tupperware or whatever. Anyway, um, He he I think uh, they gave him a bag full of stuff and he just kind of improvised whatever was coming out without knowing what was in it. That's how I understand it. But back then, I wasn't a big enough animator to be in every recording session. And only Eric Goldberg was the supervising animator of that character. So he probably got to go to a lot Um, and could probably answer that question a little better. But that was my understanding.
0: He made a really cool comment, actually, on you guys, animators being in the room with him. Uh, Robin Williams did, and he said, "It's nice when you can travel at the speed of life." I think that's quite a cool description of animation, isn't
1: it? Yes, you know, I think that we're the slowest people in the world. Um, <laughs> we have to slow things down to twenty-four frames a second. Um, so what we, we do, and and what the genie, and and by Eric Goldberg's animation, he set an incredible standard for that character. And you make every frame count. Every frame counts on the genie. Um, you have to be so cognizant of the timing and squeeze so much performance in a very concentrated amount of time. I remember my very first scene that he gave me to do. It, the problem with the genie is that he's always transforming into other characters. So he didn't really follow the, the rules that we all learned about physics to sort of really allow your character to have weight, to have um, you know, solidity. The genie was this sort of like bag of water and smoke, and it was very fluid. Um, so you really had to kind of apply a different, um, different amount of physics for that character. And, um, and I remember the first scene I did was the genie pulling himself out of the ground, literally pulling his own head out of the ground in the song Friend Like Me. And I did it 50 million ways. I mean, I just couldn't make it work. It just looked awful. And I went over to Eric and I just said, how do you do this? And he just showed me like in four or five drawings, the whole thing just, it was just smooth and fluid. And I was overthinking it. I was trying to apply, you know, gravity to it. And there's no gravity with the genie. You just do it. And it just, I remember that being an enormous learning um, session for me. And I was able to break through on that character because, that was way, way outside of my box of tricks and kind of working the way Eric does with a character like that, where um, you have to be really cognizant of the design of the character all the time, but the speed that he moves from from moment to moment, from pose to pose, you really, you would never do that with, with more uh, traditional Disney characters. But with the genie, we really had to, yeah, speed it up in a very... Yeah, tough way to explain that without a visual demonstration.
0: I don't normally do this, Joe, but I feel like you've been on, particularly with those Disney Renaissance ones, and there's only so much research I can do on yourself. Is there anything that comes to mind as another memorable story from those years? Because I feel like there are probably many, and I'm just going to throw it to you.
1: But, I mean, the thing that you had to understand back then, and it's sort of much like that today, but back then, Um, you're entering a culture. So everybody at Disney was steeped in the Disney culture. So you had to learn all that stuff yourself. I mean, you have to kind of know the background of all of the Disney um, movies, but you're in with like the best in the world, the best people in the world are in that place with you and you have to keep up. So I think there was always this feeling like you're in a high school where you're trying to keep up with all the you know, the best uh, athletes and the best, uh, the smartest kids and whatever. Um, But the funny thing that I found was none of them were into comic books. Very few were back then were into comic books. So the generation I grew up with and the people who got into comic books or uh, into animation really didn't like superhero comics. You know, that's kind of what I grew up with. So a lot of the basis that I had brought to the table, all, all the history of what I learned, how I learned to draw on all these things that came from comic books were not really helping me at Disney. And then I realized there were very few of us who were steeped in that Marvel DC world. So I found a friend of mine, Chris Bailey, we're still friends today. And we, we always laugh about this. Like That was kind of like our uh, bonding thing is that we were the few guys who actually liked this stuff. But that was the biggest... <laughs> You know, hurdle about being at Disney was learning the culture and kind of speaking the language. And I'm sure if you go to Pixar today, you'd have to do that, too. And any other major, successful, established studio. But, um, you know, we went through lots of interesting uh, hurdles. Hitting the 100 million mark at the box office was a really big deal. So I think Beauty and the Beast was the first time we ever hit 100 million. Even Little Mermaid didn't do it. So that was like a major celebration the movie before that rescuers down under that we started on that was considered a bit of a failure although i think it's a brilliant movie but for some reason it just didn't hit with the audiences so people don't talk about it anymore but i remember at the time the executives were sort of thinking of that movie as the training film for all the young guys like we had they had just brought over a lot of the roger rabbit people and you know, the new Cal arts kids. And, um, you know, that movie was kind of a bit of a training ground for us. And, Oh, this is kind of what I thought I heard about rescuers down under it was, um, Jeffrey wanted that to be his James Bond, um, kind of franchise. So he thought, you know, we'll make a rescuers down under every few or not down under, but a rescuers movie every few years. And I think he picked Australia as a setting for that movie because he had passed on crocodile Dundee, years before and regretted it and thought maybe let's set this in Australia. I don't know. These were the stories you hear when you're at the studio. So consequently, it never became a franchise because it didn't do well. But we, I think a lot of us who worked on it, hold it very close to our hearts. And um, I learned a lot on that movie. Um, We moved forward through Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, which was one of the greatest experiences um, working with Eric Goldberg and Ron and John and on a character like that, that's just like, I mean, I look back in my career day and I go, I want to do that now. I want to do that now. I'm good now. I'm really good. I could do that with, without a struggle, but now nope, there's nothing like it now. Um, so, but then back, uh, so as we, as we progressed and then Lion King came out, Lion King was, um, was the real groundbreaker. It suddenly hit numbers that nobody had ever seen at the box office before. And I mean, it changed everything at the studio. Suddenly, um, after Lion King, Jeffrey broke away from the studio and went and started DreamWorks. And he was calling all of us to come over and work for him. And what we were less aware of, I mean, we knew this was happening, but there was a pissing contest between him and, and, and Michael Eisner. And the pawns on the table were us. Basically, if you wanted to make an animated movie back in those days uh, of the caliber of movie that we were making, you need these artists. There's that's it. There's only a few hundred of them on the planet Earth. And most of them were at Disney. And the few that weren't at Disney would never come to L.A. So they were spread throughout Europe and that was it. So and they weren't minting anymore. I mean, it would take a long time for a kid from college to come out and and be good enough to work on these movies. So they knew that keeping these artists is the only way that you can keep your business going. And Jeffrey was trying to bring a lot of us over to DreamWorks. So the insane thing is like we were like meeting with Jeffrey. I mean, he would call me over and I'd, I'd have sit with him for two hours in his office as he tries to sort of pitch what DreamWorks is going to be. And And, you know, and every one of us had that experience. And if you didn't sign on then, he would throw Steven Spielberg at you. So then, you know, at that time I needed money badly. I was going through a divorce and everything. And so money was really important. And, um, and I, I my contract was up and they were bidding on me on both sides. So, um, you know, I waited to hear what the offer was from uh, DreamWorks. And at that point I hadn't heard one, but he called Steven Spielberg and I guess we set up a meeting and I went to meet Steven Spielberg. And I had met him already on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Not that he would remember, but but on Roger Rabbit, he gave us a photograph of us when we came over to your desk and chatted with you. He had a photographer with him and he took a picture of you chatting with Steven Spielberg. And he sent us all these beautiful black and white glossy and he signed it uh, specifically to you. And I remember that photograph really helped to legitimize my my career choice when I showed it to my mom. So we had a laugh about that when I chatted with him. And uh, he's just an amazing guy, so personable and makes you forget that who he is. And you just sat in a room with him for an hour and we just shot the shit like we were a couple of fanboys. And then every now and then I just kind of like thought... What am I doing here? This is in his office at Amblin. I mean, who who do I think I am? But, you know, he just said, hey, it's up to you if you want to come over. Some people will. Some people won't, whatever. And anyway, but it was such a lovely experience. I'll never forget it. And in the end, Disney outbid DreamWorks for me. And I have to stay at Disney. But that was a heady, heady period of time where people's salaries were like every few weeks or months, somebody made more than the person before. I mean, literally a friend of mine came into my office one day and he looked like he had just been hit by a sledgehammer. And I said, what's up? And he said, dude, I just picked up the phone and made half a million dollars. (laughs) And (laughs) I'm like, why? He said, I just cashed in some of my stock options. Um, Another guy came in once and he said, they just offered me a million dollar signing bonus. Uh, And you're going, what was their first offer? (laughs) I said, that was their first offer. And I said, you'd have walked away from half a million dollars. And it was just, it was so crazy. It was just crazy. And um, that went on for a few years. And then, uh, of course, you know, the party came to an end um, by the late 90s. And so many factors were... Kind of um, complicit at this point. I think there was an enormous resentment from the executives and everybody that they have to pay artists that much money. And on the other side of that was um, Pixar had started to rise, and computer animation was was making enormous amounts of box office. But none of us felt threatened by it because a we owned or not owned at Pixar at the time, but we felt like we were in partners with them. But a lot of the artists made the a critical mistake, including myself, in thinking that Pixar films looked this way, our films look this way, and we thought the look of the films were not at all compatible. So you know, you can have you know, you can have your chocolate, but we're peanut butter. You know, it's like you're not going to replace peanut butter with chocolate. I mean, you know, it's it's ridiculous. Um, so a lot of us kind of thought. Uh, We're not going to, you know, we're not threatened by this. Well, that was really dumb. And but the thing that kind of really put the final nail in the coffin of that was um, Shrek and Ice Age. And this is kind of my personal theory. They were that was at that point when I really noticed that the executives started to feel very anxiety ridden. But when those two movies came out, they were the first time that a movie outside the name Disney had made Disney dollars. Prior to that, other movies that sort of hit close and they kind of got some good box office, but never did they ever achieve like a really, you know, almost Lion King um, box office. Um, and then suddenly these two movies that and even Pixar movies had the name Disney on them. So it wasn't like, oh, Pixar came out of nowhere. But suddenly these two movies from DreamWorks and Fox came out and it was just like, oh, my God, they made real, real money. And I think the executives at that point thought, okay, enough of this. So let's get rid of the 2D animation, change the pipeline to CG, you know, uh, switch over to this. Because it it was interpreted that CG animation would be viewed by teenagers and, and young adults would go see a CG animated film. But 2D was considered kind of uh, very young and adolescent. So they, they felt like the audience was bigger and, and they could have been right, uh, certainly back then, because uh, every CG movie was making enormous box office after that. We went through a terrible period in the late 90s, early 2000s, where the studio became very toxic in atmosphere and everybody was kind of being kind of their contracts were being broke, not broken, but not picked up and people were being let go. And it was just kind of a steady stream of people leaving. And eventually my turn came up. And uh, by that point, I saw the writing on the wall and I decided I wanted to be a storyboard artist. And I transitioned to storyboarding. And um, it's been pretty much like that since then. But along the way, I also made a short film with my buddy Jim. So it was like in the late, uh, early 2000s, that was when kind of the bomb had gone off. And change everywhere and um you have to kind of pick a position so some people decided to become cg animators i tried it i didn't love it and decided i would rather stay in a world where um a story really really interested me um, and storyboarding and still drawing so i thought that was the direction to go in but when i left disney i told my friend jim hey man you know we have enough money let's take a break And let's make our own film. You know, you you and I have been working in the industry for a long time, and we've been making other people's movies. Let's you and I take a break and make our own film. And we thought, okay, cool. We made a blood pact not to get a job for a year. And we thought, okay, we can do this. We can make an animated film. We decided to make a hybrid film like Roger Rabbit so we could also learn live action. So we put some money on the table and went on this little adventure together And a year later, the film was nowhere near complete and eventually dragged on for four and a half years to make this 15 minute film. So kids at home, if you're going to make an animated film, you better um, really know what you're doing. We did it the old school way on paper. We were trying to do it with a level of quality that we were familiar with, but we didn't understand what it would take to do all of the technical things with it. The live action was actually much easier. We enjoyed doing that. It took like four days to shoot this film. And then we spent the rest of the years trying to get the animation into the live action. So, and because we had worked at the studio for so many years, we never thought of the actual logistics of it. So like just paper, just paper alone, like how much does paper cost? We used to have a supply room at Disney. Anybody can take as much as you want, paper, pencils, whatever you want. So suddenly we had no paper and it, there's actually price tag for that. You know, you have to go buy it. And we were shocked by all the, you know, once we left Disney, we were shocked by the real world and all the things that were, that we had to kind of cope with. But we had a really good producer, Susan Cohen, who's a friend of mine. And she walked us through the, um, the real world logistics and got us deals. And, you know, so we were able to make this very complicated little film you know, that Jim and I were creatively ready to do, but we weren't ready as, a, um, you know, people who have to actually make the real world stuff happen, you know, the rubber meeting the road. And Susan really helped us with that like crazy. So uh, learned a lot about, well, making a little independent film. And it won lots of awards. That
0: was fantastic. I knew I could trust throwing it to the floor there, Joe. That was brilliant. So many fantastic stories. And everyone should go and check out Animated American. It is So good. It is exactly like watching a real professional Disney movie. So to wrap up on Red Carpet Rookies, I always do my own version of in the active studio questionnaire. So just say whatever comes into your head, Joe, are you ready? Yes. (laughs) Number one, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given?
1: I'll never forget this uh, at Disney when I was there uh, for the first year or two. uh, It was, your job does not end at your desk. A producer told me that, and uh, Kathleen Gavin is her name, and she was basically telling me, "You got to go and network for your next job." And I said, "Well, I already work at Disney." And she said, "That's not a you know, that's not a guarantee you're going to be on the next movie. You got to go to tell those directors on the next movie that you want to be on their movie. Tell them what character you're interested in. Show some passion." And you know that was kind of not the way I I I was like my personality was. I I kind of preferred just. Stay back and be you know a quiet um artist but i I'll never forget that advice, and I've been using it ever since network 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 I mean everybody in the industry knows that that's
0: excellent number two do you have a favorite
1: film? clearly Roger Rabbit and Aladdin were the like the most incredible cathartic films for me um but oh my God, I should have other films there's so many films that I love um but strangely enough, richard Curtis films um I really go back to them over and over again. I don't know. They're just so well-written, just smooth dialogue. And, you know, I know I know they're just kind of feel-good movies, but I love them.
0: <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Number three, what gives you a reason to get up out of bed every day for a day of animating or storyboarding?
1: Oh my God. Um, that's a great one. Uh, I just, I love doing it. You have to love doing it. And I just get a kick out of drawing. If animating, I mean, it, there's nothing like it that those drawings move and and create a performance on the screen is still like the biggest magic trick I've ever seen. And even when I do it, I'm always like just as shocked as anybody else by the result. And storyboarding is just, it's another form of writing, Um, especially in animation. We really get to contribute enormously to the story. So you're not just picking shots, you're actually influencing the acting, you're influencing the atmosphere. You're influencing the pacing. So you're kind of directing a sequence yourself. And it's just very uh, satisfying, even though most of the time it ends up being thrown away.
0: Number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours?
1: Um, For sure, directing. Um, A writer-director would have been, if I could have started again and go back and talk to my younger self, that would have been um, a really strong direction I would have pursued that I came to too late in, in the game
0: number five this is one that is the hardest one in my opinion if you could work with one person living or dead who would it be and also i think you didn't work with him but i am i right that you met possibly our most legendary guest so far peter lamont production designer of titanic
1: oh my god that's right <laughs> yes um the different story but uh, the, to answer the first part of your question um I'm actually still hoping this will happen. Uh, I would love to work with Brad Bird. He and I worked together years and years ago on a commercial before he became Brad Bird. Um, I freelanced a little bit on a Coke commercial that he was doing and I got to know him and he's such a brilliant, I mean, just such a brilliant guy. You know, mildly reconnected at parties a couple of years ago. And I keep hearing of a movie that he wants to make that I'm really interested in working with him on. But that would be so awesome. I just, I admire him so much. Um, but I admire many people, but he's one who's kind of crossed over successfully into live action and still you know, did brilliant work in animation. As far as Peter Lamont goes, in, uh, in London way back, um, I got to work on a movie called Highlander as a storyboard artist. Um, and I got it through a fluke. But um, after I finished that movie, I wanted to do another live action film. And I was uh, meeting a production designer at Pinewood. Um, I finished my interview with the production designer. I didn't want to leave Pinewood. So I asked him what other movies are going on in the building that I could maybe pop in and see other production designers. And this was a true story. Uh, He he would point out to one movie, like he said, uh, Oh, Little Shop of Horrors is going on over there. Go see um, somebody. And I went and I literally crashed into their production office. And I said, I'm here with my portfolio. And they were all super nice. I was, you know, very young. And they all accommodated me. And I asked them, do you know of another production designer I could go see? And this went on like a chain. I did this the whole day.
0: Network, network, network.
1: Yes. <laughs> and I didn't have that, uh, that advice back then. So, but I, just, I didn't want to leave Pinewood Studios. And I thought this is the last time I ever come here, I'm pretty sure. And it was. But anyway, the last one I walked into was Peter Lamont. And uh, he was literally making some kind of a deal at the time for the movie Aliens. And I had not, you know, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know who he was. And um, he was so nice. He said, could you wait for me outside? And he finished whatever the meeting was. And then he was nice enough to, you know, to look at my portfolio and give me some advice. And he thought, you know, he said, I use a lot of my own board artists, but I would, I will call you if I need extra people. Um, and he never called me, but um, I'm just like, he's always kind of stayed in my head and heart as somebody who, who could have like, thrown me out of his office and probably should have, but, um, but was very nice to me at a time when I was really uh, young and stupid.
0: That's wonderful to hear. Number six, what is a book that everyone should read? It doesn't have to be a film book.
1: And you know, there's so many, but I, I'll say the one that actually affected me, and it's not a film book, um, but it actually affected my decisions on how to um, direct my career. And um, it's the, the book that everybody may have read. It's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And uh, yeah,
0: Robert Kiyosaki.
1: Yes, <laughs> um, and you know it's it's about how to um, look at money and how to look at investing and how to look at making a, a, a weekly paycheck and stuff that I did not know anything about. Being an artist, I know nothing about that stuff. And I think everyone should read it. Who is an artist? Because um, we all have to make money, and you have to know what to do with it when you make it. Otherwise, you will always be you know scrounging
0: great advice and finally if you won an oscar who would you thank
1: i would naturally want to thank the people who got me there but um my mother and my late father of course um because in the end we're always doing this for them they are the ones that you want to feel some level of pride that hey we did not waste our time raising this brat you know i I think my dad especially would have thought because he loved movies and he, and he, I think he would have loved that I did all of this. Um, but he died when I was 12 and I I don't think he, you know, obviously ever saw that I was heading in that direction. And my mom is still here, thank God. So, uh, I hope that she would, uh, I know she's dying for me to win an Oscar, but I'm sorry, mom, I don't think it's going (laughs) to (laughs) happen.
0: And on that though, we very sadly must bring our interview to a close. Thank you so much, Joe. Your passion absolutely bleeds through the screen. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh my God. Thank you. That was lots of fun.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow and be able to interview more amazing film and TV professionals, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. If you're interested in regular updates, the best thing you can do is join our mailing list at redcarpetrookies.com or alternatively, find us on Instagram at redcarpetrookies.com or on Twitter at RC Rookies Pod. I also tweet regularly about my own learnings in the business at MikeFBattle on Twitter, so please do come and say hi.
1: Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.